everyone, and welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House that focuses on key issues in the international climate negotiations and international climate politics. I'm Anna Oberberg. I'm a researcher here at Chatham House, and I co-host this podcast together with my colleague Anthony. Today, we will be looking at how climate change affects security issues and what this in turn means for defense forces. And we will have a particular focus on the UK and on NATO. With me to discuss this, I am delighted to be joined by Tobias Elwood, who chairs the UK House of Commons Defence Committee and who has previously, among other things, served as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Ministry of Defence and Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Hello, Mr Elwood. Good afternoon. Delighted to be with you and thank you very much indeed for covering this important subject. We are so pleased to have you and the timing of the episode is really, really good because we are releasing this episode on the same day that the Defence Committee is publishing its report, Defence and Climate Change, which is the result of an inquiry that was launched in May last year. And we also have a second guest, Anand Farhan, who works with me here at Chatham House and who has recently published a report together with two other Chatham House colleagues looking at how NATO can strengthen its response to climate-related security challenges. Hello, Anand. How are you doing? Hi, very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to hear So, Mr. Elwood, I'm going to turn to you first and ask you to set the scene for us. How does climate change impact security issues, both at present and what can we expect to see going forward? We sometimes treat security in its own bracket. The hardware that our militaries use, fighting against each other, dealing with adversarial threats and so forth. Climate crisis is is seen separately and it's, again, something that's creeping up on the agenda. It's the biggest test of our times. It's unfolding in slow motion. It's clearly an acute existential threat and time is running out. But we need to connect the two of the consequences into security of what climate change will do. I was very moved by what David Attenborough said at the COP26 in Glasgow, where he said, today, the threats to security are of a new and unprecedented kind, that these threats should not divide us. These threats should unite us no matter which part of the world we're coming from, because climate change is going to affect us all. What our report has provided is just how profound the security implications are of climate change as parts of the world become uninhabitable, as global food production starts to suffer, as access to fresh water will decline and weather patterns impact on our ability to to trade and move goods around the world, and indeed swathes of Africa and Asia will become uninhabitable. This will be so testing for our very fragile security environment that we have. The world's entered a very volatile decade, as we we see. Things are not going in the right direction. And now we have to overlay climate change and our responsibility to that, and also our ability to fight. This is something that our study provided, is the equipment that we use. Is it ready? Is it fit for purpose to the very extreme weather patterns that we're likely to face? So I'm really pleased we're able to discuss these things today, and I hope it'll help nudge and wake up the MOD and indeed the government that there's an awful lot to do. Thank you very much for that. I would like to dig in a bit deeper into the the findings and the recommendations of this report. So what are the implications for for the UK armed forces? Well, it's to do with strategic resilience. It's being able to function in the changing demands that we're going to be facing with. Uh, I mean, simply from a practical perspective, our Royal Navy ships, our surface fleet, already cannot operate in certain parts of the world because the seas are too warm. The engines need to keep at a certain temperature just to be able to run. 
So straight away, we need to have different ship design. Last month, RAF Bryce Norton, this is our biggest RAF base where the heavy lift aircraft are all located, had to close down because the, the, the runway actually melted. The tarmac actually baked in the sun. So these are practical concerns as to how we then operate. We're also purchasing, procuring over a thousand upgraded tanks, APCs and so forth. They're all going to be running off diesel. Whereas in, you know, the next decade or so, civilian cars, you know, we're moving away from diesel and petrol. These vehicles are going to be around. The military vehicles are going to be around for the next 40, 50 years. This is after our big commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050. So we need to factor in climate change in our long-term thinking. So that's just on the one side. You then have the demands that are going to be placed on our military, which we can, I hope, look into a bit more. We're involved in different countries where governance and security are challenging. Overlay that with climate change. It'll be even more testing for our armed forces. Do we have the armed forces ready, capable to be able to do those things in addition to what we're doing in places like Estonia and Eastern Europe? And then, of course, we have closer to home. Who do we call out when there's flooding, when there's power outages or uh, so forth, or challenges with pandemics? It's our army in here. Well, the MACA request, the military assistance to civil effect. Now, if we're going to have more extreme weather patterns, more challenges to how we operate and keep Britain going, we're going to need a bigger army to do that as well. So there's an awful lot for us to digest and package in. We've just had the integrated review refresh, the government's updated defense posture to take us through the next few years. And there's very little in it that actually touches on and recognizes the details that even I've just in the last few minutes been able to sort of unpick. So I do hope that uh, this report, which I think is an excellent report by the Defence Committee, will provide greater food for thought for not just us in Britain, but of course NATO as well, as to how we handle this massive challenge of climate change. Thanks so much. And we'll return to the report in just a few minutes' time. But I wanted to bring you in, Anum, also linking to what Mr. Elwood said about NATO, because you've done a lot of research on, on NATO and how it can do more on climate and security. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. What implications does climate change have for NATO? Thanks, Anna. Well, I think it's important first to just emphasize why NATO is such an important actor in the climate security space, because it might not be immediately understood. Climate change is a cross-border threat that needs the kind of multilateral cooperation that NATO can provide so that we can better understand and anticipate risks, so that we can manage crises, so that we can coordinate action. So although it was kind of formed as this purely defensive organization, the reality of our security landscape has expanded. You know, we need to think about threats like emerging and disruptive technologies, economic security, and now climate change. And NATO recognizes that defense is going to look radically different in a climate change affected world. The type of equipment we use, what type of operations are carried out, when and where forces are deployed. So climate change is going to affect all areas of allied security. And NATO has made some really important and positive signals that it wants to play a larger role in building climate resilience. You know, you see climate change being prioritized in the recent 2022 strategic concept. You had the launch of the Climate Change and Security Action Plan. And there's a center of excellence that Canada is hosting, which is focused on climate change and security. So these are all really positive. And 
NATO itself has also set out some really ambitious climate targets. You know, it aims to cut emissions by 45% by 2030 and to become carbon neutral by 2050. Although importantly, this target does only apply to NATO-run facilities and not the emissions of allied militaries, which are far greater. So as an organization, you know, it has massive convening power. It can bring together 31 member states. You know, recently we saw Sweden and Finland wanting to join as well, despite having a long history of neutrality. So it can play a really important role in supporting allies and their defense forces to respond to climate impacts and to build resilience against future shocks. I think in the current context, we do need to recognize that Ukraine is inevitably NATO's focus and probably will be for some time to come. But NATO needs to be able to address more than one security challenge at a time. And climate security in Ukraine are interconnected issues. You know, we've seen, for example, how the war led to a really dramatic increase in food and energy prices across the globe and even political and social instability in some countries. There's also been some quite interesting analysis on how rising temperatures influence the start of the conflict. So some have suggested that uh, Ukraine had an unusually mild winter in 2021, which meant that there was less ice on the ground. And this delayed Russian land-based operations because they couldn't move their heavy vehicles as quickly. So all of this is to say that It's a false dichotomy to assume that by acting on climate change, you have to take away resources from the war in Ukraine. You know, in fact, if NATO increases its understanding of climate risk, if it looks at future proofing equipment and infrastructure to changing climate conditions, if it looks at how it can strengthen partnerships with various actors across the climate space, you know, it will actually be in a better position to deliver on its core tasks. So investing in climate change adaptation and mitigation will strengthen the alliance. You know, Tobias has really nicely captured some of those direct impacts on the armed forces. Just to re-emphasize some of them, you know, it's going to impact people, it's going to impact equipment, it's going to impact infrastructure. And all of this is going to weaken NATO's ability to defend and deter. It's going to make operations more expensive, more time intensive, more technically challenging. So again, coming back to climate adaptation is key and it's only going to save costs and lives in the longer term. Thanks so much, Annem. If you had, say, three to five key recommendations for, for NATO, what would they be? Yeah, so we've done quite a lot of research on this. And I guess if I was to highlight three focus areas, I'd pick out the need to build political consensus, better anticipating climate risks and strengthening operational resilience. And a lot of these are actually very nicely captured in the UK's Defence and Climate Report. But just to go through them very quickly, so building political consensus, NATO has the influence and the ability to build unity and coherence between allies on how to respond to some of these risks. There's quite a few mechanisms that it can draw upon. So it's introduced an annual high-level dialogue focused on climate at the beginning of every NATO summit. This is a really valuable moment which can be used to kind of build political cohesion to encourage collaborative policy making, to really look at how NATO can speak with a common voice on climate-related issues. Many people have also argued for the creation of a special advisor role to the Secretary General, 
to kind of continue raising the profile and momentum on climate security issues. And like I said, this Centre of Excellence, which is being hosted in Canada, will be a really important forum for dialogue and for moving things forward on implementation. In terms of anticipating climate risks, so NATO and allied militaries have a huge range of tools that can collect really precise data on climate trends. You know, NATO itself already has a lot of expertise and it can draw on the expertise of allied militaries as well to bring this data together more comprehensively. So looking at some sort of multinational military effort to create an early warning system, I think would be really important to anticipate and prepare for potentially unstable scenarios and could have really key strategic benefits. And there's a lot that can be learned already from the US's climate assessment tool, which kind of scans 1400 locations globally and assesses if they are going to face any key climate risks in the coming years. So I think building this capability requires NATO to take more seriously having experts with scientific and data literacy skills. This data can only be translated into action if policy officers have the knowledge and language needed to evaluate and provide decision makers with informed judgments. So working across kind of scientific and academic communities is really key. And then finally, in terms of strengthening operational resilience, you know, I think this is the bit which requires a bit of a mindset shift. And if it's one thing that you can take away from my comments, climate action does not need to be incompatible with security and defense priorities. NATO can improve its military effectiveness and simultaneously meet its climate targets. And a big part of this is going to be looking at reducing energy consumption, improving energy independence. So one example that we've looked at in our research is microgrids on military bases and how these can be used as a source of renewable energy. Fuel use, so R&D into sustainable fuels, which the UK and the US are kind of leading on already. So NATO can really incentivize these actions by using the platform that it has. You know, it can facilitate cooperation between allies. It can help share that knowledge and expertise between militaries, private sector, civil society. And then finally, NATO has to also reduce its own emissions. This is a big part of the role that it has to play, and it's essential to its own credibility and maintaining trust. A large proportion of the public sees NATO as an alliance of wealthy nations responsible for the majority of global emissions, which are harming those in the global south. So the Secretary General can play a role here in terms of leaning into public concerns, exerting pressure on allies to set their own military emission targets if they've not already done so, and reporting to the UNFCCC annually. And critical to this will be NATO and allies' ability to communicate the climate threat to the public, you know, and to make the case for why climate adaptation and mitigation is needed. So, Mr. Elwood, thinking about the international picture and linking to what Anna was speaking about now, how is the UK engaging with organizations like NATO on climate and security? And what more could be done in this space? Well, can I just say I fully agree with what Anna has said. I mean, I do hope that NATO is taking this seriously. They have a history of debating these things. It's another thing to then put that into action. So let's see what happens with the Canadian Initiative. I'm pleased that that centre has been put up, but it is very, very 
late in the day. We are starting to see the impact of climate change already. This isn't another generational thing that we can park into the future. This is something that we need to grasp today. I'm always moved by what Jim Mattis, General Mattis, said about spending less on aid. He made the statement, the less we spend on international aid, the more he has to spend on bullets, which is a very profound statement as to why it helps for us to reach out and engage. I would advance that to say the less we spend on tackling climate change, the more we're going to have to spend on security because of the direct consequences that have been outlined. And I think it's it's very profound, as Adam articulated, the lessons in front of us that are playing out in Ukraine. You know, how the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting, depending on when the ice is frozen or not, and the impact on grain shortages and so forth. So this is all very, very real-life stuff that we have to deal with. From a UK perspective, I think there's much more that we could do, but it does require uh, more collaborative thinking, understanding the security implications, how our armed forces need to adapt, how we train, how we actually climatize as well in conducting environments in ever-demanding conditions as well. We do need to future-proof how we can operate effectively. The MOD is charged with, as other government departments are doing, in cutting down its own carbon emissions. But we need to recognize that uh, there's greater latitude must be given to all Ministry of Defenses because simply of the work they do in providing security. But I believe that NATO, Britain and NATO could do far more in that collaborative space, not least on the procurement of carbon neutral equipment, which uh, we need to start to factor in into our thinking. And there is no, as far as I understand, that there is no real efforts apart from the blue sky stuff, which is being done to see how our three main services, Army, Air Force and Navy, can operate in, in a cleaner environment, bearing in mind how hostile the world is going to become because of climate change as well. NATO is a consensus driven. Ultimately, it requires everybody to lean in and make this happen. For me, perhaps, it's the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is this smaller group of NATO that will have operationally, I think, greater challenges presented to it because the ice cap's melting, the high north, as it's called, will become increasingly important for international trade as people take a shortcut around the, the North Pole. But Russia clearly has sights on it, expanding its own interests. It's planting flags in the water claiming that terrain, probably for mineral exploitation. So I think it's the Joint Expeditionary Force, which could be perhaps the smaller group that, as I say, needs to think more carefully about how it protects the high north, but could also perhaps be the platform from which greater engagement, greater investment, greater collaboration on the practicalities of working together you know, could be a, an interesting platform to advance. Thank you. So you have held this inquiry and you have published this report that we have been discussing here today. What happens next, Mr. Elwood? Do you expect these recommendations to be taken forward? Well, that's the interesting thing about all committee reports that operate and scrutinize what government is up to. We slide this across the table to the Ministry of Defense and they digest it and they come back with a formal response. They look at every single recommendation and they come out with their own statements as to what they're doing, whether they accept it or whether they add detail as to what they're doing to advance it or whether they disagree as well. So we look forward to hearing what the Ministry of Defense has to say. 
I think privately they're going to agree with the majority of the report. But it all comes down to funding. You know, we have this situation now where our defense spending is stuck at a peacetime budget at around 2.2%. Everything we've spoken about requires greater investment. And that's where the strategic thinking comes in, in recognizing that if you don't invest in our security, our economy will be affected in the longer term. There'll be less money in the treasury coffers, not just for (laughs) the military, but also for health, for education, for all these other government departments as well. So that's the insurance you're providing our country, recognizing that our security and our economy are symbiotic. They're interconnected now. You cannot distinguish one from another. If you don't invest in our security, our economy is impacted. If you don't invest in our economy, our security is impacted as well. And climate change adds a new, complicated, but enormous dimension to international and national security. Yes, I was going to ask you about the challenges actually regarding taking these recommendations forward. Is that the funding element then, or are there additional challenges? I think there's a mindset, absolutely. We'd like to recommend a, a, a director for understanding and coordinating climate change. So there's an individual personality. We've been really impressed with the retired General Richard Nuji, who's done a huge amount of work on this and bringing this together. But he's no longer in the MOD itself, but is brought on as an, an advisor. But I think Adam very much focused on what NATO can be doing as well, because it's very clear, and as she, she articulated, this is a massive cross-border threat. I mean, going back to what David Attenborough said, that this is something that really should be not dividing us, but absolutely uniting nations around the world. And we're a long, long way from that. We couldn't even get the agreements in COP26, as Alok Sharma was frustrated to see. But what will come first is the challenges, is the security implications of climate change. So I hope that our study, this inquiry, will wake not just the MAD up, but you know the wider national and international community to recognize what's coming over the hill if we don't start to invest it. You know, we're concerned about migration in this country and elsewhere. We've seen nothing uh, compared with what is coming over the hill. There'll be movements on a biblical scale, you know, when parts of Africa, the deserts expand, food crises develop because the crops simply are not grown. There's so much that we could be doing now to prevent some of these, you know, profound changes taking place that's going to impact on, on the ground and make sure that our very fragile security situation doesn't get even worse. I think with with all the challenges that we're facing, you know, we see China, we talk about Iran, and certainly Russia as well, the absence of coordination of the UN as an international organization to knock heads together. Ultimately, climate change, it's climate change that is the biggest threat, absolutely an existential threat. And the sooner we grasp that, the sooner we lean into that, the sooner we start to begin to appreciate how that will actually impact on security much more than any other of the threats that we're facing today. Thank you very much. We're approaching the end of this interview. Anam, I would just like to give you the floor again, so to speak, if you have any reflections on what Mr. Elwood has said and how you see the the UK's role in this space. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Just to re-emphasize what Tobias was saying on the need for climate advocates and climate champions from every which space. You know, we need to lean in on these actors. We need to learn from these actors whether it's the UK, the US, the European Union, the United Nations, 
Sweden, Finland, you know, actors in the Indo-Pacific that are also going to be in the front lines of climate change. It's really the time now for everybody to step up and take this issue seriously and look at how climate change is going to increase security challenges and how to build in climate resilience for the longer term. Tobias Elwood, Anim Farhan, thanks so much for taking the time to be interviewed for the Climate Briefing podcast today. It was very interesting hearing what you both had to say. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Listeners, we'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, please feel free to check out previous episodes, which can be found on the Chatham House website, Apple Podcasts, Libsyn, and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks for listening. Thank you.